And today, the King of Kings wants to introduce himself to you. He wants you to know him. And when you meet him, your life can't be the same. And today he comes to each one of us here and says, let me introduce myself. Let me show you who I am and what I'm like. Because in this passage that we read in Isaiah 6, Isaiah meets the king. He meets the king. And he gets just a glimpse of the king on his throne. And he is amazed. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He has a glimpse of the king. And we're going to look at what difference that makes in our life. Now, before we go any further, just to remind you who Isaiah was. Isaiah was a prophet of God. That means he was somebody who spoke God's words to God's people. And so God would communicate to his people through his prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was speaking to people and he was going to have a really tough time. If you read the rest of chapter 6, he goes on to explain that when he's going to speak to people, they're not going to listen. They're going to turn away from God. And so his ministry, his work was going to be really hard. And so here he is, he's going to encounter the king. And this encounter with the king is going to help him and change his life. And he says, look at how he starts again. I saw the Lord seated on the throne. He sees the glorious king. Now, who does he see? Well, in John chapter 12, verse 41, you can look this up later. Isaiah, um, John says this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw the glory of Jesus. So who does Isaiah see here? He is seeing the second person of the Trinity, the Christ, Jesus, before he becomes a man. He sees Jesus in his glory. Now, when Jesus came to this world, it's as if he, he veiled his glory somewhat. Uh, you know, so we, we couldn't see, the, the disciples and those around him couldn't see just how great he was. He was clothed in flesh. But on one, a few occasions, he revealed something of his glory, like on the Mount Transfiguration. We see there, just it's peeled back, and we see who this king really is. So Isaiah sees Jesus on the throne. That's who he sees. And so I want to ask a question as we start today. Have you met Jesus? Have you met the king? Because this passage is going to show us what that looks like when you do. Because this room is full of people who can say, I have met the king and my life has changed. Maybe you're here and you're not yet trusting in Jesus. And you're wondering, well, what difference does this make for me? Well, look here, this is what it means to encounter Jesus and to meet with him. Now, when Isaiah was having this um, vision of Jesus, um, commentators differ. Some say this was at the start of his ministry. Some say it was um, kind of halfway through or as he was already a prophet and he had this in the middle. Well, if it is the latter, if it is that he had this encounter in the middle of his ministry, isn't it an encouragement if you're a Christian here today that actually we need these encounters with Jesus to help us to keep going? And we need these fresh times of God meeting with us to show us who he is and what he's really like. And I pray that through this passage this morning, each one of us in here, whether we've met Jesus yet or not, will have this fresh encounter with his glory and his greatness, and we will leave here changed people because we've met the king. Now look what happens here. Let's look at verse 1. When does this vision happen? It happens in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had been king in Israel for 52 years. He'd been mostly a good king. 
Uh, but at the end of his life, like so many of the other kings, he strayed. Uh, but he had been there for a long time. So uh, they, when they, they knew who was king, he'd done it for 52 years. But now, all of a sudden, this person they'd always seen in rule, in um, authority over them, had gone. And so in one sense, it was a bit unsettling. So I, this happens, this like, vision that Isaiah has happens in this kind of unsettling time. Now, often, when people meet with Jesus, it can happen at a time in life where something that we've relied on, something that is, seems stable in our life, is suddenly taken away. And we start to realize that what we build our life on maybe isn't as secure as we thought it was. And maybe in here, if you're a Christian, you can think back to how you met Jesus the first time, and you can see, actually, I did feel this kind of unsettling. I did see things maybe about myself that I wasn't happy with. Or maybe something happened in your life, maybe um, something to your health or a time of grief or something not satisfying you in a way that you thought it it would. Suddenly that's exposing really an emptiness and leaves us searching. And so often in those times, God can use those times to shake us up and to show us what's important. So today, um, I wonder what it is, maybe in your life, God is shaking you. Maybe he's taken something away that you've been trusting in and, and suddenly you can't turn there anymore. And you think, well, what is life about? Maybe it's time for you to meet Jesus today. Now, what does that meeting with Jesus look like? Well, let's look at three stages in this passage. The first stage is this. We are humbled by his glory. Humbled by his glory. So Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, and he is high and lifted up. Isaiah wants us to meet and to see that this God, this king, reigns. He is the true king, the Lord, that is the king, the sovereign. He is seated on the throne. He is high. He is lifted up. Now look what Isaiah has shown us before we go any further. He's shown us King Uzziah has died. The throne is empty in one sense. There's another king coming in. But there's a throne that is above that throne, and that's the throne of heaven. And that throne is always occupied. There is never a moment where God has his back turned. There is never a moment where God isn't on the throne. He is always in control. He is always reigning. There is never a succession. There is never somebody else to take his place. He is always there. No gap. No days off. He is there all the time. He is a stable, firm, faithful king. And isn't that good news? Isn't it good news to be reminded of that today? And maybe you need to hear that today specifically. Because something has happened in your life, and you might think, well, the throne of heaven is empty. There's nobody there. There's nobody seated on the throne if this has happened. But actually, we're reminded today that God is on the throne. Maybe we look at the world around us and think, it's spinning out of control. There's nobody in control of this. It's a mess. But actually, we lift our eyes to heaven, and we see there is a throne that is occupied And God is working out his purposes in his time and in his way, which doesn't always make sense to us. But we can trust today that it is happening. There is a king above all kings, a throne above all thrones that is always occupied. And we need to take courage and encouragement from that this morning. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. But what's this king like? Well, we see that he tries to describe what he's saying. Uh, what he sees there. He tells us what God is like. He says the throne, and he starts to describe, and he says, the train of his robe filled the temple. The train, the, the hem, 
if you saw the pictures from yesterday, if you watched it yesterday, I think um, Prince George was holding part of the, trem, uh, the train of King Charles's robe. It was long, wasn't it? Very long. These, they were walking down the aisle with that being held. Well, so this is describing the king, and he doesn't get any further that's just from describing the hem, the train of his robe, and that is enough to blow him away. He just is describing the hem of his garment, as it were, and that is enough for him to say, well, it was amazing. And what do we see next? Well, he sees these angelic beings, beings in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. That means fiery, heavenly beings. Okay? And what are we told about them? Well, they had six wings, and these wings had a job. And with two wings, they flew, but with the other two wings, they covered their face, and the other two wings, they covered their feet. So these are cre creatures created to worship and praise God. And what are they doing? Even these fiery creatures couldn't bear to look at the glory and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. Isn't that amazing to think? That's how glorious he is. I don't know if you've had that moment where you've been rudely awakened by somebody coming into your room, maybe in um, opening the curtains, and your eyes are like, they hurt when it's so bright, you know? Or you've been in, maybe in the cinema or in a theater in a dark room, and you go out into the light, and oh, it's, it's blinding. You know that kind of feeling in your eyes? That soon eases, isn't it? Because your eyes get used to it. But here it's as if that happens and it never eases. It's just always brightness. There is too much for these beings that were created to worship God to do. And they can't even bear looking at his glory and his greatness. And they cover even their feet. It's as if they don't want anything exposed to the greatness of God. He is so great they just feel they need to cover up. And what are these seraphim doing? They are singing to one another. And they're singing praise to God. And li listen to what they're singing. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, if you wanted to emphasize something in English, maybe if you were doing, um, or Welsh, or any language really, if you're doing it on a computer, um, you would put it, maybe highlight it and put it in bold, wouldn't you? Or underline it. If you're doing it by hand, you might want to highlight it or, um, again, underline. That's what we would do to say, look, t notice this. Well, in the Hebrew language, what you say is you, you repeat things. You say it twice. And in the Bible, we see this happening a few times. So in Genesis 14, um, um, R.C. Sproul points this out. He says, look, it talks about men falling into pits. But these weren't just any pits. They were, in the Hebrew, pit pits, <laughs> deep pits. So how does he emphasize that they were deep by repeating it? But here we see this isn't just repeated twice, but three times. This is in underline, this is in bold, this is highlighted. All the things you want to do, capital letters, God is holy, holy, holy. He is like nothing else. What does holy mean? Set apart, different, other. He is holy. And it's such a dramatic scene, isn't it? Because it continues, and these um, beings who are unable to look on the glory of this enthroned king, what happens next? Verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook. Isaiah is in the temple, remember here? And the foundations are shaking. And um, all around him, the place fills with smoke. In verse 4, we're seeing it was filled with smoke. And often we see this in the Bible. Where God's presence is, there is often an earthquake. Because his glory and his greatness is so much that the ground can't even handle it. 
if I were to get you all to stand up and jump up and down, I will wait. I wouldn't do it because we need a new floor. <laughs> but um, our weight would make the floor shape, wouldn't it, together? Because our weight is greater than what's, you know, what's on the floor here. And so in one sense, we see God's greatness and his weight and his glory as it comes down, descends on the earth, the earth can't handle it. It shakes. That is God's greatness. Think of Exodus 19 in Mount Sinai. It says that it is wrapped in smoke and the Lord had descended on it in fire and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Just can't cope with his greatness and his glory. Hugely dramatic scene. All of Isaiah's senses are now buzzing. He saw glory. He felt the earthquake. He could hear the seraphim singing. He could smell the smoke. This was something where it was just everything was, was alight now. Now, before going any further, is this the God you have in mind when we think about God? Is this the Lord Jesus that you have in mind when we think about Jesus? His glory and his greatness. One who is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise because he is he's glorious. And if we were to see a glimpse of him, we, wouldn't help, we couldn't help but bow down and worship him. So often we make God small, don't we? We make him manageable. We make him somebody that we can cope with and deal with and look down on and pass judgment on. But when we see what he's really like, we're humble to the core. When he's small, we can do with him what, he, what we like. But actually here we see something. This God needs to be unleashed. He is glorious. He is great. He is powerful. And as we get a bigger view of God, it'll change our lives. Isn't how one writer put it? If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with the street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, You'll fall in love with the world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. There is more. There is greater things to enjoy. And God is saying, come and know me. Come and enjoy me. There's a bit in uh, Prince Caspian in the Narnian books, Narnia books that C.S. Lewis wrote. Um, and Lucy sees Aslan and, say, and she says, Aslan, says Lucy, you're bigger. And Aslan said, that's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, said Lucy. I'm not. For every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, as we get to know more about God, he just gets bigger and bigger. That's the prayer. That as Christians, we get bigger views of God. So Isaiah, he's in the temple. He sees the view of this king of kings, the one who reigns and is holy. How does he respond? Look at verse 5. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me. I am lost I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, what is Isaiah saying there? Well, woe, if you look back on just the, the, the chapter before, he's pronouncing woes to people around who have gone against God. That is God's judgment. He's bringing a curse. You've rebelled against God, and you are going to face the judgment you deserve from this. And instead of pointing out now to other nations, he sees himself. And he says, woe is me. I am condemned. I have had it. I am doomed. I am cursed. The end is coming for me. You know, the fact he's just been doing it to the nations around emphasizes, look, I see this now as me. 
in the light of God's greatness and holiness, he just felt he had nothing. And he felt like his lips were unclean. Why his lips? Well, there's lots of discussion about this, but I think the most realistic answer is that Isaiah was a prophet. That was his job, was to speak. Something that he should have been good at, strongest at. And actually, the Hebrew scholars say that his, um, the book of Isaiah is very elegant, and the Hebrew is very good, very high and very, um, you know, really well written. So he was well-spoken. He was an educated man. He had good ways with words because he was a prophet. And at the point he was strongest, he now felt his weakest in the light of God's greatness and glory. In the light of God's all-seeing eyes, suddenly he felt his true size. Now, if I were to play football on a schoolyard, maybe if I went down to one of the primary schools here, and I found maybe the young yard for those under age seven or eight, and I went to play football, do you know what? I think I'd look pretty good. I think I'd have a good show in, I'd show some skills, I'd feel pretty confident. But if then I were to travel up to Manchester City and join in one of their training sessions, I think I'd feel very, very small. I'd be puffing and panting before long, and I wouldn't be able to see the ball because of the speed. You know, it depends who we compare ourselves to, doesn't it? That when we see what God is like in his greatness and his holiness and his beauty, when we see that, suddenly we realize, you know, I'm not as strong or as big or as good as I thought I was. See, an encounter with Jesus will always start here. Have you been humbled by his glory? Have you been in a place where you're uncomfortable because you realize that this Jesus knows everything about you. He is all-powerful. He's all-glorious. He is holy. The light is shining on our lives in every corner, nook and cranny. He's seen it all. Now, surely then, when we see that, we realize how, how, how small we are, how, how unclean we are. Now, remember, Jesus is the one that Isaiah saw. And in John's gospel, we see um, in that Mount of Transfiguration where um, the disciples went with Jesus up the mountain and, and he revealed his glory to them. What's their response? Verse, um, Matthew 17, verse 6 says this. When the disciples heard this, they heard the voice, they fell on their faces, terrified. Or in Revelation 1, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, gets a vision of the glorious Jesus. And he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Just humbled by his greatness. Now, this morning, have we pushed God, God into a small box where he's comfortable and we're in control and we've forgotten his greatness? If that is us, I bet, I can um, say I bet, but I, I, I'm sure that this is also something that's happening in our lives. That following Jesus has become quite boring and dull and hard work. We don't want to talk to him. We don't want to spend time with him. We're not going to sacrifice anything for him. Well, because he's small and manageable and not that interesting. But this morning, see who we're called to follow. See who he is and his greatness and his majesty. This is Jesus. And so following him, how could it be dull? How could obeying him and following him be anything but glorious because of who he is? Have you had a real experience with him? Have you been humbled by his glory? Maybe even right now, you're having a glimpse of it. Maybe as we look at this passage, God by his spirit is helping you to see and you're feeling like Isaiah here, you're feeling, woe is me, I've had it. If God has seen me as I really am, that's it. 
Well, the good news is we're not finished yet because there are two other things we need to look at. The first stage of encountering Jesus and knowing him is being humbled by his glory. But the second thing is being amazed by his grace. Isaiah is face down on the floor. The earth is shaking. Smoke is swirling all around him. He is he's feeling like he's, he's come to the end of himself. I've had it, he says. Then something happens, verse 6. Suddenly, all of a sudden, one of the seraphim fly over to him. But they don't fly empty-handed. They are holding tongs. And in those tongs, they have gone and they've got fire, a burning coal from the altar. Now, at this moment, Isaiah wouldn't be thinking, oh, great, there's fire coming towards me. He would be equally terrified as he already is, even not more so. Because in the Old Testament, we see when fire is described, so often it comes alongside God's wrath and his anger. So he is seeing coming towards him this fiery being carrying something full of fire coming right towards him and what happens with that he takes this burning coal and then verse 7 he touches where the bit the part of him that feels the weakest he touched my mouth the unclean lips so what is happening here well at the point he feels most dirty he feels like he's had it he is done is that it well no look what happens in verse 7 Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Your sin is covered. Your sin is dealt with. So Isaiah on the floor, quaking, expecting nothing but God's wrath and anger for how uh, unclean he feels. Totally unprovoked, God sends one of these seraphim, and this seraphim touches him with this burning coal from the altar, and he is forgiven he is saved he is rescued isaiah deserves nothing and yet what does he get he gets this glorious forgiveness power glory greatness and then he thought it was going to consume him but actually he gets wonderfully this um, this this cleansing from the fire now what's going on here well look where the fire is coming from we're told that this coal is taken from um the altar what happens on an altar in the temple? Well, that's where the sacrifices are made. So a sacrifice was being made. And so from that sacrifice, we see that God has provided a substitute for Isaiah. Somehow God has provided somebody or something that was going to take his place and, and face the fire of judgment that he deserved so that he could be forgiven. Now, in the light of God's holiness and purity and greatness, in the light of King Jesus, in all his majesty, we can feel just like Isaiah and we feel undone. I've had it. There is no chance for me. God sees everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I've ever thought. How could he love me? How could he care about me? How could he do anything with me? How could he forgive me? Look what we're told here. That place that we feel most dirty, that situation or that thing that we feel most hopeless in, God knows, and we might feel undone, but God says to us today, I want to forgive you there. I want to deal with you there. See, God has provided a sacrifice for us. Now, we see this is in a temple, and in this temple, the, um, this earth shook. Well, there's another scene in the Bible in Matthew 27 where the earth shook, isn't there? And the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Because when Jesus died on the cross, when this king from the throne stepped down, humbled himself, 
and came to the cross, gave his life as the sacrifice for us, bearing the judgment we deserve. He faced the wrath and the fire of God's judgment in our place. He came to earth and he did that. And because of that, there was a sacrifice made. And that means that we can be forgiven for all the wrong we've done. Even in the deepest, darkest thing that we think God could never forgive. God says, yes, even that. I wonder today what it is that you think there is no way God could cleanse that. Maybe you think it's your lips because the things you've said to hurt people. Maybe it's your thoughts that are just so dark. Maybe it's your eyes and what you've seen. Maybe it's your mind and just what goes on in there, your, your heart and what the darkness that there is there. Maybe it's your feet and places you've been. Wherever you feel most dirty, God says today, let me cleanse you. Let me wash that clean because the sacrifice has been made. The King of Kings has come and died so that you can be forgiven. And maybe for the first time today, you need to accept that because you think there is no way God will have me. But here God says, I will forgive you. And maybe you're a Christian here this morning. Remember, this could have been in the middle of Isaiah's ministry. He already was preaching, but God needed to remind him of this. And maybe you need a fresh reminder. Bask in the glory of God now, but also in his grace, the undeserved forgiveness, the undeserved forgiveness for what we uh, have done. If you're a Christian today, realize this, God loves you. Realize this, that he is holy, and yes, we are unholy, but there is forgiveness. So we're humbled by his glory. We are amazed by his grace. And the last very brief thing is this. He is ready. We are ready to go. Ready to go. Verse 8. Um, he hears God speaking. You see that. Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? He hears God, the triune God, speaking. Father, Son, and Spirit. Who's going to go for us? Who's going to be able to go and share this message with others? Now, Isaiah has just been forgiven by this glorious king. And God says, who, are we going to let the, who is going to tell the world about this? You know, who's going to tell the world about my greatness and the great news of, of the gospel? Well, there is no hesitation here. What does Isaiah say? Here am I. Send me. Hand straight in the air. I'll go. Whatever it is, I will go. And he says, a chance to serve and obey this God who has done this wonderful thing for me? Of course I'll go. You know, it is so wonderful. Of course I will obey you. Obedience isn't the problem here. It's not a bad or a dirty word because he says, I get to serve this amazing, gracious king. Of course, I'll go. I'll do it. Whatever. Now, there was some controversy yesterday, wasn't there, with the um, order of service for the king because they put a little bit in there where um, you were invited to pledge allegiance to the king. And for some people that was fine. For others, they found it quite offensive. No way, I'm not doing that. Not to him or whatever, whatever your views might be. But today, God says and invites us to pledge allegiance to him. To say, will you, will you follow me? Will you trust me with your life? And when we see what he's done for us, all the questions and the doubts go away, don't they? They're all taken away because we realize that he loves us so much. He has done so much for us. Who will go? Now, it's so important for us to see the order that this comes in. You see, he's humbled by the glory of God. He is amazed by the grace. And then he goes. Then he obeys. Now, have you messed that order up in your life? Because so often we think, I need to obey in order to get God to love me. 
I need to do good works for him, and then he'll love me. And so we miss this order up. And so we try and earn God's love, but actually he says, no, no, no. I forgive you, now go. You live in the light of that obedience. One way of exposing that is, uh, think of the situation. You've had a, um, you wake up one morning and, um, and you wake up and you're full of joy. You're full of joy and you, you think, I'm going to read my Bible. And so you read your Bible and you, God speaks to you. And he, he, a verse jumps out and you think, that's amazing. And then later in the day, somebody asks you about what you believe and you talk to them and you say, well, let me tell you something I read this morning. It, it really has helped me and it might help you too. And you tell them about Jesus and you're bouncing around the street and then maybe it's a Wednesday and it's prayer meeting and you come along to prayer meeting and it's time to pray and you think, I'm going to pray. It's been a good day and you pray to God and wonderful, praise God. Let's rewind and imagine that day happens again. Okay, you wake up and your alarm doesn't go off, you wake up late, you're running late, no time to read your Bible, so you get, um, you get uh, going and you, you, maybe you're ratty with people in the house and you're rude to them or you're cross and you lose your temper and um, you, know, you go through the day, somebody asks you about Jesus and you just bottle it, you don't want to speak about him so you just leave it and you miss an opportunity, you think, oh what have I done? Uh, and then you fail or you mess up in different ways in work maybe and you just think you, you have a terrible day and it's a Wednesday. And maybe you just about come to prayer meeting and it's time to pray and you think, I can't pray today, he won't accept me. Do you see what we've done? We've thought that God accepts us based on our performance. But that's not how it works. You see, the obedience here comes after we've been forgiven, after we've been accepted and loved. Is That's the foundation for us. So today, you need to remember that God, wonderfully, he saves and then he says, now you can obey. He doesn't say, right, try your best, and then maybe I'll accept you. No, he invites all of us, whatever we've done, to come and know him and be forgiven. This is how one writer, Jerry Bridges, puts it. Our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Whether we have a good day or a bad day, we need the grace of God. Now, maybe today... Um, you've slipped and you've messed that order up. Well, let's come back to him and say, Lord, I thank you for your greatness and I am humbled by it. I accept wonderfully your forgiveness of me because of what Jesus did on the cross. And now I want to follow you. I want to go because I want to tell others. I want to live for your glory and honor. So let's pray that today that is how we live. And maybe for the first time, Jesus invites you and say, I want you to meet the king. What does meeting the king look like? You might think, what does it look like? We're humbled. We're amazed, and then we're ready to obey and go. That's the shape, and I pray that each one of us would know something of that today and meet the king. This king and his coronation will change our lives, even if the one yesterday won't affect us in a few days' time. King Jesus can help us from now and forever. So follow him, trust him, and keep our eyes on him. Let's pray before we sing our last song together. Father, we thank you for the glory of this passage and what Isaiah went through. And thank you that Isaiah's story can be ours. We pray, please, that you would help each one of us to know what it is to be humbled by your greatness, but not to leave it there, to be amazed at your grace and then be ready to go in obedience to the great God of heaven who invites us to follow him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.